And beloved, here once again, holy, the inerrant, the infallible word of the living God. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Amen. And once more, may the Lord richly bless us under his word this morning. Of all of the Gospels, John certainly would be among the most familiar. And of all of the portions of this text, certainly the first chapter would be the most well-known. But beloved, as we take up John 1, especially in these latter sections of the chapter, I think we've often lost sight just on how relevant these words are to us. I mean, how relevant they are to the 21st century. That that what we are encountering here, uh, these clarion calls to see Christ, are actually calls that are just as relevant as they were when the first congregation on the banks of the Jordan heard them. You see, friend, as we take up these latter portions of chapter 1, that is the one theme that the gospel writer, writing under, under inspiration of God's Spirit, insists upon. He is going to show us, historically, what it means to fulfill the command of verse 29. He's going to show us, through various vignettes, what it means to see the Lamb, to see God's Lamb. And friend, as we look at this text... I think it will become clearer and clearer with God's help that that the kind of thing that's commanded here and the kind of thing that we see exemplified on these, on these lines, well, friend, they are just as relevant for us as they were for those who heard them first in the first century. I want you to notice, beloved, that as we continue in this portion of John 1, the gospel writer is giving us a very clear picture a historical example of what he's already told about, told us about in the first 14 verses of John 1. You remember that in John 1, the prologue as we call it, it set before us the idea that, that God had sent John to bear witness, to be one who would testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember as we came from, from verses 16, to 18, and then later on when we dealt with the deputations from verses 19 to 28, John did just that. He bore witness to Christ. He did. There was no question. John went as the preparatory voice. But when you come to our text, really when you come to verse 29 that we took up two Lord's Days ago, John's ministry has changed. He remains the witness bearer. He remains the one who will give God's testimony. God's testimony. 
to the church. But the testimony has changed its form. Before, and we've seen this not only from John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well, John preached anticipating the arrival of Christ. John preached anticipating his public exhibition. But now that he has been publicly declared, when Christ in his baptism was declared to be the Son of God, then John's testimony changes. Instead of anticipating, his ministry now becomes one of indication. Behold the Lamb. The one whom I've preached about. The one whom I've told you to anticipate he's come. And now John's testimony is, and this is he. This is he. But friend, as we look at this text and this change, it's important to remember that what John is doing here is still the work that God had sent him to do. I know that perhaps seems like a simple point, but, but as you look at verses 4, 7, 15, 19, 32, 34, there's one consistent word that appears in the original. And that is this idea that, that John is doing the work of Marteo. That is, he is being a faithful and a solemn witness, and even, even a legal witness to truth. Which means, beloved, he is still God's testifier. You need to look at these words that we encountered this morning and what you find throughout this text as really presenting to us a legal situation where John comes indicating Christ, pointing to him in a legal, formal, and solemn way on God's behalf as God's ambassador. In other words, beloved, you and I are not encountering here the, 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 the informal, the private testimony of a man. Here you have God's ambassador fulfilling his office. Now, if we keep that in front of us, then, beloved, this text really opens itself up to us in powerful ways. First of all, when you look at verse 29, if you remember that that command is a command not from John considered as a man, but from John as one sent from God, as the mouthpiece of God, as God's legal ambassador, beloved, that command has profound weight. Behold is not a suggestion. Behold the Lamb is not advice. Behold is a command from on high. And what's striking is, even those who are on the banks of the Jordan then, they understood that. Because you remember when Christ comes to the Pharisees, and, and, and he comes to them asking, well, what, by what authority was John's ministry established? You remember that left them, that left them stammering. They, they weren't sure quite how to answer, and here's why. They said it among themselves, if we shall say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? If John really is God's ambassador, then he speaks in the name of God. He speaks under God's authority. And therefore, those who hear him are obliged. Obliged to receive his testimony. Even in the first century, they recognized that much. Behold was not a suggestion. It was a command. But what were they to behold? Perhaps this is the point, I think, where we look at this text and we fail to see its abiding relevance for us. You see, the behold 
of verse 29 is intimately tied to what you find in in our text this morning. I saw, says John, and bear record. I want you to notice that John here, as God's ambassador, says, I saw. He's not speaking just from personal testimony. This is not about you and me just kind of sharing with people our own experiences. This is God's ambassador saying that he saw. He received from heaven. And he bears record. And why would he bear record? Why is it necessary that we hear from John's lips what we do? Well, friend, put very simply, because he is sent from God, we are to receive it. We are to believe it. Because it is to be received as God's word. In other words, behold is seconded with this. For I, for I, says John, saw and bear record as God's solemn witness. What are they to behold? Yes, they are to look to the Son of God incarnate. But friend, more importantly, the word behold, there, the command relates to the testimony that John bore, that he saw and that he declared as God's ambassador. If we hold all of that together, then what does this text teach us? Well, briefly, friend, what you have here is a reminder that God's testimony of his Son is to be received by faith. God's testimony of his Son is to be received by faith. Now, I want us to consider that briefly this morning under three headings. I want us to consider the origin of that testimony. I want to consider also the obligation which it confers. And, of course, I want us to think as well on the object that it sets before us. So take just, first of all, the origins of this testimony. As you look at verses 31 and 33, you might come to something of a question. Because John says there, he says, I knew him not. He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me. And what he's saying there is, he's saying that I, I did not know Christ. I did not know him who I was to baptize until he came to me on the banks of the Jordan and until I saw what I saw from heaven. Well, that raises a question. And the question could be put simply like this. Well, in in 144 of Luke's gospel, you have John leaping in the womb whenever he hears Mary's voice. And of course, you remember that, that John the Baptist and Christ were cousins. And surely Elizabeth... Surely she would not withhold from her son. Surely Zacharias would not withhold from his son the fact that that Mary had conceived that holy thing, as, as the angel Gabriel says, who would bring about the deliverance of all of God's people. Surely those things wouldn't be concealed from John. So, so what is John saying here? What is he really saying? Well, friend, as you look at this text, it's important to remember that we're dealing with John not on a personal level. John, the evangelist, is interested in John the Baptist primarily as he is God's testifier, as he is God's witness bearer. And so, friend, in what sense did John not know him? Well, verse 33 that I've just read to you, he says this. He says, he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto him, that the one who will baptize with the Holy Ghost will be revealed to you extraordinarily. 
In other words, friend, God's ambassador did not publicly declare Christ to be until God himself had told him to do so. Beloved, that's the point. The point of this whole text is that John is in the work of being God's witness bearer. And so the idea is that I too waited upon God's promised extraordinary revelation, proving that he did not preach from private suggestions or inferences. Friend, this is a crucial point, and it's worth, worth belaboring. John is saying to his congregation, I only bore witness to him once heaven had opened and declared him to be publicly what he is. John did not go out preaching from private suggestions or ideas. He waited upon God. Friend, what does that mean? Well, staggeringly, beloved, it means then when he says that he saw the Spirit descending. Well, beloved, you're supposed to understand that he saw that in his official capacity as well as his private. He saw that as God's ambassador. Now, Christ saw that as well. And it's possible that others on the banks of the Jordan at the moment of Christ's baptism saw it too. But the record in our text is that John saw it and is therefore to be believed. When John preached these words, when Christ came to him again, after those two deputations from Jerusalem had departed, nobody in that congregation saw the Spirit descend upon Christ in that moment. Nobody in that moment saw heaven open and God declare that this was his Son. Nobody at that moment heard the voice. So why were they to believe? Well, beloved, they were to believe because it was God's testimony that John was presenting. He was bearing record as God's ambassador. The implication for you and for me, beloved, is very simple. But even in the first century, even in the first century, men could only believe the Lamb of God as God had revealed him. That men must wait upon God's revelation of his Son. And that through the means that God himself had ordained. Beloved, if you were to go back to the banks of the Jordan when these words were first spoken, if you were to go back to that congregation where Christ stood, well, friend, no matter how the hagiographers and all of their artistic innovations would portray it, all that, that congregation had was the bare witness of God's prophet. And beloved, that was sufficient, says Christ, for men to believe. Even in the first century, God's testimony of his son was to be received through God's revelation. Now, beloved, if we keep that what it is, then I think one thing that comes to us clearly then, more clearly perhaps, is why scripture was so necessary, why revelation was so necessary when Christ came. You see, when Christ came, when he stood there in the Jordan, there, there were no halos. Heaven didn't open, and the seraphim and the cherubim, they were not proclaiming him the Lord of hosts. No, when John preached to behold the Lamb of God, they saw Christ in his estate of humiliation. 
They saw him as a man, and not only as a man, you remember this, as one that had no form nor comeliness, as one who had taken upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, as the Son of God who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. So how were they to see the Lamb, as John here commands them, as God commands them? Well, friend, it must be entrusting themselves to the revelation that God has already given. It must be God's word of Christ that is to be believed. Even in the first century, beloved, it was still necessary that men And women laid hold of the revelation of God in order to believe Christ aright. And you see that, don't you? I mean, as you look, as the apostle deals with this very theme, he says that the world, the world was such that they did not, though they possessed so much wisdom, they did not know the wisdom of God. It was only through the foolishness of preaching that God had ordained that men would believe. That the public testimony of Christ from his word would be that which would be the means of salvation to souls. Now, beloved, without this word, without laying hold of God's testimony of his son, as John here gives it to us in this text, men will misbelieve Christ even if they see him with their own eyes. You remember how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 2. None of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What Paul is saying there is that the magistrates that were involved, they saw the Son of God incarnate. They saw him walk on the earth But they didn't really know him. And why didn't they know him? They didn't know him because they didn't believe the record that was given him by God. They didn't receive the revelation of God's Son. They looked upon him only in a carnal sense and therefore crucified the Lord of glory. Beloved, the revelation that we have of God, of his Son, is necessary if we're to see Christ aright. And beloved, it is so because God's portrait of his own son is infallible. Peter puts it to us this way. This word that we have, this verbal revelation of Christ that was given to the bank, on the banks of the Jordan through John's witness and is given to us in the inscripturated word, this word, Peter says, is a more sure word of prophecy. What's staggering about that is, if you remember in Second Peter where those words come to us, He's just told us about his own experience on the Mount of Transfiguration where he heard heaven proclaim, the Father proclaim that this is his well-pleasing Son. And then Peter says, but we have received a more sure word of prophecy. And you and I scratch our heads at that. How could that be more sure? How could that be more sure than Peter's experience on that day? Friend, all you have to do is remember back to how the disciples responded when they heard that word. Peter says, let us build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. They saw Christ. They saw him transfigured in front of them, but but they didn't interpret him aright. 
But beloved, there is no misinterpretation of Christ in the word. Men would misinterpret Christ who saw him with the eyes of the flesh. But God's revelation never swerves, never presents to us a Christ other than that which really is the Son of God. The difference between this then, beloved, is biography and autobiography. Here we have not one man's testimony from, him, from his own wisdom of Christ, but here we have heaven's declaration of the Son. It is a secure, it is an accurate word. The likeness that it paints for us is true because its origin is from God. For us then, Christian, as we think about this just briefly, the implication is astounding. The Christ that is presented to us by God's testimony, both in our text immediately but right throughout the word of God, is a sure word. Which means then, Christian, that the Christ who is presented here is the Christ that his people will see hereafter. There will be no surprise, no surprise, no shock to those who have studied the record of Christ in this word. And so do you know him? Do you know him, Christian, from his own testimony and his own word? The second thing that we find in this text is the conference of obligation. Verses 29, verse 29 rather reminds us that there is a command in view, and that is to behold the Lamb. And it is a command that is issued from God's ambassador, and so it carries with it divine authority. But I want you to notice that John here says that he bears record. Now, I suppose those are words that you and I could quickly overlook, but those are very important words for us. John takes us out of a kind of personal conversation and places us in the midst of a courtroom. When he says that he bears record, the sense is that this is a legal testimony. There's no way around that. He is bearing record, bearing record for God of Christ. Now, beloved, if you keep that before you just for a moment, I think we'll see just how profound, how profound John's statement is and the change that has taken place in his testimony. He comes as God's advocate. That is the one sent by God to plead his cause with the church. And he comes bearing testimony for Christ and negatively against unbelief. That is, if this record is not received, because it is a legal record, it stands against all of those who disbelieve it. It must. If this is God's testimony, if this is revelation of divine origin, then John here is standing before them really with an ultimatum. He stands before them with life and death. They'll either be legally condemned or by believing, they'll find themselves, they'll find themselves justified in Christ. You see, this obligation is communicated to us in Matthew 11. Remember Christ referring to his own ministry and that of John the Baptist. He says, we have piped unto you and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you and ye have not lamented. And this was part of the rebuke that was to come to that generation. 
This was God's solemn testimony. And they were insensible to it all. They didn't recognize. They did not respond as they ought to have. And beloved, if you remember again that what you have here is a reminder that God's testimony of his son is to be received. Whether it is on the banks of the Jordan in the first century or it's through the inscripturated text in front of us. There is an obligation to comply. You and I are obliged to believe the scripture testimony of Christ. Every time the word is read, beloved, every time this testimony is read, every time it's publicly proclaimed, that obligation comes. Christ indicates this through his own commission of his disciples. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Those who solemnly and faithfully bear forth this record to the public, Christ says, as that record is faithful, your rejection is my rejection. Their hatred of you is hatred toward me. That's how closely Christ ties himself to this public declaration of who he is, his own word and testimony. Beloved, it's the same thing that you have even in the Old Testament. Moses says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Again, Moses again puts us into the courtroom and he says, I am God's solemn witness. I'm I'm setting before you his testimony. I'm setting life and death then therefore before you. And if you will not believe... The entailment is you've not rejected the messenger, but you've rejected him that was sent him that sent him. Again, beloved, through his prophets the Lord says, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Heaven didn't open, it was the inscripturated word, spoken first by the prophets, but then communicated to us through the scriptures, that God continued to say to men. I set the way of life before you. The Lord says he's personally doing this through this testimony. And beloved, what happens when that testimony is rejected? What happens whenever men throw off all of those obligations and and run headlong into unbelief? Well, here's what the apostle himself says. When when he preached, when Paul preached this self-same record, what, what did he say when he was rejected by the Jews? Finally, in Acts 18, he says this. He says, your blood be upon your own heads. In other words, I have faithfully declared that which God has commissioned me to do. And if you've not received, the guilt falls only upon you. I mean, this is the very self-same thing. The very self-same thing that Ezekiel is told. If thou warn the wicked and he turn not from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. In other words, you're not culpable for his death. If the record has been faithfully given and they don't receive it, says God, the prophet is not, is not to be held guilty for their damnation. And beloved, John the Baptist is doing precisely the same thing. He is saying, I am bearing record as one sent from God that this is the Son. And the congregation turns around and says, well, we don't see heaven opening. 
We don't hear voices saying that this is the Son of God. You did perhaps, John, but, but, but we didn't, so why should we believe you? And the answer is that because, is because He is God's testimony bearer. It is because He is speaking under divine inspiration, and because it is divinely inspired, you and I are obliged to believe it. Do you realize, friend, that that means in the first century and in the 21st century, the same, the same way of God's dealings with souls is kept. The revelation of God, as, as He shows to us His Son, is always to be that which men receive by faith. And if they don't, friend, as the Apostle says, their blood is on their own heads. And Christian, how often is it the case that the faithful minister of the gospel, that the one throughout the cent- through centuries could say, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? You can have the most faithful testimony bearer. Friend, you can, have, you can have the greatest and most eloquent testimony of Christ, the opening of that testimony given to you. But the sad experience of the church has always been has always been that so few receive this testimony. What then is the call of, of those who give that faithful testimony but receive rejection? Isaiah 53, 1, who hath believed a report? He goes back to God with a complaint. You see, friend, for those who have received this testimony, there's a weighty obligation annexed to it. Christ puts it this way, that those, those who heard Christ's testimony through his disciples, he says this, whoever shall not receive you nor hear you when you depart thence, shake off the dust from your feet for a testimony against them. It shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Peter goes even a step further. He says, It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered unto them. What are we saying? What is John saying? Well, friend, the record that he is giving is a precious record, a profound record that carries with it incredible obligation. Every time you and I sit under this record, either privately, but especially in the public proclamation of it, You and I, as it were, are entrusted with something that is quite valuable. Because, of course, it's from God. Imagine, friend, being entrusted with pearls of somebody else's property. Imagine imagine being entrusted with immense wealth of somebody else's property. Imagine just for a moment. Imagine for a moment what kind of obligation would be assumed. Would you not be culpable for abusing Casting those pearls before a swine. Well, friend, every time that you and I sit under God's record of his son, every time, again, either privately but especially publicly, you and I are held, are held, held out to us rather incredible, valuable things. And these texts remind us that men are obliged, genuinely obliged, to deal with them as they're commanded. Not to mistreat them, to abuse them. Friend, that really is the difference, I suppose, between those who are connoisseurs of sermons and those who are conscientious hearers. The conscientious hearer under 
the word of God. Always ask, how shall I answer for what I've heard? I'm obliged to receive this in a particular way. The Lord God commands that I receive this in a particular way. And so how shall I answer for it? How do I bear up under it? Thirdly and finally as we close. It's not just the case that John has reminded his congregation. Really the the channel as it were of their belief. That is upon the record that God has given through his prophets of his son. But he turns our attention to the son himself. Verse 34, this is the Son of God. That is John's solemn record or testimony. And beloved, as you look at verses 29 to 34, I suppose you could find some kind of tension, just humanly speaking. Because you remember in verse 29, you have this wonderful, shocking change in John's witness bearing. And that is that he calls Christ the Lamb. Never Never in John's preaching ministry had he called Christ that. But now he does. He calls him the Lamb. And then on top of that, he calls him the sin bearer. As in the one who is presently bearing the sins of his people. And then he turns around, and at the end of verse 34 he says, And this selfsame one who is the Lamb, who is the sin bearer, is also the Son of God. Now friend, in just a few verses there are so many profound themes there, aren't there? And you can imagine how somebody listening to that for the first time would almost be shocked. Mouths would certainly drop. But friend, in these several verses what you have, for all the profound themes... You have John setting before us, in summary, Christ's person and work. There's no tension, no tension whatsoever. All that you have here is a clear testimony that the one who is the Son of God would also be the sin bearer, that the one who is the Lamb of God's provision would also be the well-pleasing Son. Beloved, that is the object of this testimony. It is this that is to be received by faith. Those who are on the banks of the Jordan were to believe that the one who is standing before them, the one who had taken upon himself the form of a servant, born of woman, born under the law, was indeed the Logos, the eternal word that John has spoken of in the first 14 verses of this gospel. In other words, they were to believe that this is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, that all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. In other words, that in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That was what they were called to believe. When John said, this is the Son of God, those on the banks of the Jordan were to believe, because it was God's record that John spoke, that the one who stood in their midst was all of that. Moreover, that this is the one who could say, I was set up from everlasting from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. That this is the eternal and the well-pleasing Son of God. Beloved, as you look at this text and you hold all of these themes together, you realize, don't you, 
that God has always demanded men to receive Christ only by faith. So many, beloved, so many today are following all kinds of representations of the first century. Evangelicals are are almost in a craze these days, and watching movies and television shows, trying to depict the gospel accounts. And they and they do that, I suppose, because they want they, they, they want to be, or as much as they can, in front of the incarnate Christ. But beloved, it's a it's a corrective in this moment for us to remember that even if you were there, you could only receive him truly by faith. Even if you saw the incarnate Son of God, it was still the record that God had given, the verbal record of God that must be believed. What else were they to believe? They were to believe that he was the sin-bearer, the lamb. In other words, that God had not spared his own son, but had delivered up him for his people. That this is the one who is smitten of God and afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That this is the one who be delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Beloved, that is the Christ that God's record sets before us. And as we close now, friend, what does that mean? It means, I think, just a few things. First of all, John's testimony here is about a personal and a living Christ. The command in this text is to see Christ, not to see him with the eyes of flesh, but to see him through the record that God himself has given. To see him, in other words, through the word. And the question is, do we see him? Do we see him? Beloved, I know of somebody who, who had studied thoroughly these records. I knew, I, knew, I knew a man who was intending to become a theologian, had, had submitted himself to all manner of study to think about Christ, to, to, to work out the intricate doctrines, both of his person and his work. I knew a man that, that he, he went through all of that rigor and for all of that still did not know him because he knew him as only as an idea. He knew a Jesus that was neither living nor personal, just a Jesus of thought, a theme if you like. Friend, one day whenever Christ did come, when when he did take hold of that soul, the most surprising thing to him was that Christ was alive. And this glorious Christ of God's record is a living and personal Christ. And so, friend, that, that is what is required. I know many men and women who are orthodox in their Christology who think and talk about Christ as though he were merely an idea. 
There were many in the first century who sat on the banks of the Jordan and who heard John preach and who saw Christ with the eyes of their flesh, who nevertheless would cry, crucify him. Beloved, do we see him? If we see him, then our faith will be lodged in the record that God has given us in his word. If we do see him, beloved, then how blessed are we to have access to this record? How blessed are we to be able to sit under this record? I mean, you remember how Paul puts it to us, quoting from Deuteronomy, Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Beloved, what a blessed privilege it is to have this record in front of us. It's not a small thing to have the word of God. Not a small thing to have the ordinances of the gospel in front of us. And yet, friend, we don't measure our weeks by these things. We don't measure our days but by our access to these blessed privileges. Beloved, it's not a small thing to have God's solemn and formal testimony of his son set before us. Testimony of his living, of his perfect, of his gracious and well-pleasing son. Beloved, if we have it, it's a token of grace and we are then supposed to prize it. But secondly too, Christian, if we do have it, knowing that its origin is from God, that it's a formal testimony, what does that mean? That means, friend, that one day the Christ of the Gospels that you and I see, the one, the one who is pleased to turn aside and have compassion on the blind men at Jericho, the one who looked over the fields and saw the multitudes that had followed him and had compassion upon them, the same one that though dying and knowing the pains of hell would turn to a thief and promise him life everlasting. It's that Christ that his people will see. Because it says the scripture is Christ. This Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Beloved, for those who study these oracles clearly and believingly, when they cross the threshold of death, really they'll be stepping back only into a conversation and into a communion that they'd already long enjoyed. For some, there's a greater transition. For those weaker among God's people, for those weaker among God's people who've never tasted an early heaven, there'll be much, much surprise. But beloved, those who have believingly held these reports, they simply go to the Christ they already knew and that they knew intimately. Here's this portrait. Here's the portrait. And if we profess love to Christ, then it's to be our study. Here's the record that you and I are accountable for. You and I must answer for. And beloved, here's the word that says, see God's lamb.
see the well-pleasing Son and find life in Him. May we be those who in every regard comply with God's command.